Howdy, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Elephant in the Room podcast, the podcast of the Georgetown University College Republicans. I'm your host, Ian Cruz, and today we'll be breaking down the 2022 midterm election results. Republicans had a much more disappointing night than anticipated, barely taking back the House of Representatives, losing a seat in the U.S. Senate with the Georgia runoff pending, and losing two governorships, losing a net loss of two governorships. Joining me to break down these somewhat disappointing results is the winner of our midterm election predictions contest. So for those of you outside of the Georgetown community, we had an internal midterm election prediction competition within our members, and the winner will be joining me to break down the results in this episode. So without further ado, it gives me great privilege to congratulate the winner, Leah Raymond, who's been on this podcast before. She did the Michigan segment of our Midwest Mayhem episode. So Leah, it's great to have you back and congratulations. Thank you you so much, Ian. It's great to be on here again. Uh, As Ian said, I'm Leah Raymond. I'm a freshman in the college. I'm looking at studying uh, sociology and minoring in education on a pre-law track. And I'm just, I'm thrilled to be back on. That's great. Well, let's dive right into the results. Let's start off in the House of Representatives. So this was seen before Tuesday, November 8th, as the bare minimum for Republicans to win. The House of Representatives was ground zero. You lose the House, we're not going to have a terrible night. We still won the House, had a terrible night. Yes. One uh, key indication that I was looking at when the results were coming in was Virginia, the state just south of us, just Mm -hmm. across Key Bridge. And someone had told me that if you look at the Commonwealth of Virginia, there are three competitive, there were three competitive districts, district 10, which was Northern Virginia. It was Loudoun County, hardcore suburban DC. You had the seventh district still pretty suburban, uh, suburban area of DC, but a little more exurban. So a little further away from DC. And then you had the second district, which was Virginia beach, Hampton roads, that area, And if Republicans had won Virginia's 2nd District, it would be a red ripple. If they had won Virginia's 2nd District and the 7th District, it would be a red, it would be a red wave. It would be a very good night for Republicans. And if they had won all three, it would be a red tsunami. Uh, And it would be a complete decimation of the Democratic Party across the country. Now, ironically, using those three, Virginia's 10th District, went for Biden by around 18 points in 2020, only went to the incumbent Democrat by around six points. So that was a very interesting stat line that that district shifted over 10 points to the Republican Party, while at the same time, District 7 only moved a few points. So Congresswoman Spamberger was reelected by around 4% when that district went for Biden by around 7 So that district only moved three points to the right. District 10 moved around 10, 11, 12 points to the right. And District 10 is a much more unfavorable demographic group for Republicans, at least in the Trump era of the Republican Party. Even Glenn Youngkin failed to win this district back in 2021 when the state as a whole moved 13 points uh, compared to 2020. So That result baffles me that Republicans did so well in District 10 and so poorly in District 7. They did win District 2. So Congresswoman-elect Jen Kiggins, congratulations to her, defeated the incumbent Elaine Luria of the Democratic Party. And she will now be in Congress. A very pivotal vote. As it stands right now, Republicans have around 218, 219 seats with a couple more left to call. Uh, which is mainly in California, and of course the recount in Colorado's 3rd District, which we could touch a little bit more upon later. But Leah, what what were your reactions Tuesday night, especially in the House? Did you think Republicans were going to have the big night that everybody hoped? And when the results actually started pouring in, how did your mentality shift? Uh, So I was up with the GOP that night. And of course, you know, as everyone predicted, I assumed public Republicans would probably um, have the House by this slim of a margin I did not see coming. Um, I tend to take a pretty pessimistic view on politics, as you'd know. So I didn't have 
exceeding hopes for the night. Um, you know, I work with the, the DCGOP and we absolutely did not have exceeding hopes for the night. So that kind of blanketed um, my mentality across the nation. But watching the results come in was really, um, it, it was not a lovely time by any uh, any stretch of the word. I was, we were pretty disappointed. Um, the whole group of us there um, with just how unwell um, Republicans did as a whole. And, you know, not only the slim margin, which we got the house, but the slim margin by which Republicans were winning at all. Yeah, that slimness is is very shocking considering Republicans won the national generic ballot by a few points. I think it was a Republicans got 4 million more votes than Democrats. Mm-hmm. And everybody said if it was like an R plus three, R plus four, R plus five national environment, that Republicans would make significant gains. They'd be looking at Republicans in the 230 seat range of the House, taking back the Senate and winning a couple of governor's races here and there. Uh, and the complete opposite happened. And we'll get into the Senate and the governor governor's races in a little bit. But the House alone, like Kevin McCarthy took a very different approach. He's likely still to become speaker. We could talk a little bit about House GOP dynamics as well. But Kevin McCarthy put out his commitment to America saying this is what a GOP House will be focusing on. And I think some of it was really good. I liked how he was really focusing on education. I think that was a great point. Absolutely. The emphasis on crime, I think, was really on point uh, for Republican messaging. And I mean, we saw that play out, especially well in New York, which big, big shout out to Lee Zeldin. He was the hero of Tuesday night, in my opinion, for Republicans. He gained us four House seats in New York alone, which without we would not control the House. So he sacrificed his own seat for us to get the House, essentially. And he did very well at the gubernatorial level. And of course, we'll talk about we could talk about New York in a little bit more detail, but to have that slim majority and even then Kevin McCarthy taking a bold step by saying we are going to have an agenda as the minority party. And we're going to have an agenda going into a midterm election when previously it was always Democrats bad, you know, President Biden bad, you know, President Obama bad, et cetera, et cetera. Like whoever the Democrat president is, they're just bad. And if you don't like what they're doing, vote for us. So I think that that shows that, A, you can't just sit back and, and let the Democrats control the messaging and just say they're just bad. Just don't vote for them because they're Democrats. And and you have to provide an alternative. But I hope the Republican Party, especially the House GOP conference, doesn't take the wrong message from this election. It's not wrong that they put out an agenda. They should put out an agenda because you know what that does? It tells their voters that it gives confidence to their voters that this is what we're voting for. We're not just simply voting against. And I know a lot of Republican voters in particular want to vote for something, not against something. Democrats are good at voting against things. 2020 is the pinnacle of that. They didn't care for Joe Biden. It was let's settle for Biden, not let's enthusiastically go champion Joe Biden across the country. It was just, we hate Trump this much. We're going to just settle for Joe. Republican voters demand more of the Republican Party. I think that's a big takeaway. And the House GOP needs to learn where we need to refine our messaging. I think a lot of the inflation messaging should have been more refined. It's great to go after gas prices, but focus on groceries. I think that was one thing that was lacking in the GOP messaging. Like Glenn Youngkin in Virginia hit that by saying, look at the grocery tax. He had a great ad in a grocery store saying, look at all these prices going up because of the grocery tax. And here's me taking it away and look at the prices going down. He literally had a visual aid to say, I'm taking away the grocery tax. Here's a little decrease in the price. And when he's checking out, he says, look, it may not be a huge amount of money, but a couple pennies, a couple dollars here and there adds up. Absolutely. So I think having that visual aid for the Republicans and having that targeted messaging to what hits every American because yeah, mo- a, a huge majority of Americans have cars. That's that's true. But we all need food. Like we don't need to have a car. We need to eat to live. And I think that hitting on groceries a little bit more would have hit home with more working class voters and more just 
Americans across the country, I think they would have been like, oh, wait, I really need to think about this. So, I mean, that's a little bit of a critique of the House GOP. I do want to applaud Kevin McCarthy, though, for putting out an agenda. So I know I'm sounding pessimistic now, but it, it is a good thing. And, and that's one thing where uh, the Senate and the House, they did disagree on. They, the, the, the Republican Party in each chamber was like, no, we shouldn't have an agenda. Mitch McConnell just wanted to be a referendum on Joe Biden. And Kevin McCarthy wanted it to be more substantive. So we'll see how that dynamic plays out in in the 118th Congress. But let's shift over to talking about those dynamics. Let's talk about still within the House GOP. Uh, do you think that the Freedom Caucus, because I know Congressman Andy Biggs challenged Kevin McCarthy for the speaker nomination within the GOP. Do you think the Freedom Caucus will really leverage this and say we have such a slim majority that if you disrespect us, you put us on the fringe, you don't listen to us, we're going to shoot down a lot of your legislation, and we're going to block you from being speaker. Will they use that leverage, or will they ultimately say, yeah, Kevin, we got your back? Ooh, that's a hard one. I have very mixed opinions on it. I, I think it's great that he put out an agenda this year, and I think that is absolutely helping him, right? On the other hand, I have... Um, you know, I've, I've seen some things that he has not been so vocal in the past, right? Um, and that a lot of people in Congress are pretty skeptical about his ability, if you will, to actually put put that foot forward that the GOP needs and have the um, have the ability to have that say that in Congress that you know the Republican Party really needs to have. So I think a lot of people are kind of doubtful about his abilities as. Um, you know, as the Republicans have the majority in the House and how much he can really do with that position. I think he definitely still has a fighting chance um, being, I guess, the incumbent in the situation, if you will. Right. Um, I think the vote's probably going to be in his favor because of that, especially. Um, and I guess I say that with hope that he is able to um, let the GOP have a have that stand in the house that the Republicans need. Um, will he, a lot of people are skeptical. Am I a little skeptical too? Absolutely. Uh, I don't know if anyone would necessarily be better. He's got the experience obviously. Um, so we're just hoping for the best. Yeah. My take on it is a lot of the new freshman Republicans, or at least a lot of the new wave of Republican politicians, mm -hmm that are part of like the Trump wave, the MAGA wave, the new Republican party just don't have personal relationship with other members. And so they're not able to put their hat in the ring and say, elevate me to speaker or do this or give me power, like a leadership position. They need to stay in the house a little longer, command more influence over the caucus, and then they can go up. And so I think that's the issue that the Freedom Caucus runs into because it has ex it exploded in a way in the sense that it has grown so much because of the Trump base. The Trump base now looks to the Freedom Caucus to hold, you could say, the establishment GOP in line by saying, hey, you're compromising too much on our principles. You know, bring it back. Let's let's stop this nonsense and let's oppose Joe Biden. Let's oppose the Democrats. Let's put forward strong conservative legislation. Now, will Kevin McCarthy ignore them at his own peril? That's yet to be seen. I don't think Kevin McCarthy is that uh, ignorant of the situation. I think he knows very well that there are at least 30 members of the Freedom Caucus could grow because new members haven't officially joined yet. They don't know yet uh, how many that final number is going to be. But judging by reelected incumbents, it's at least going to be in the 30s. Like Jim Jordan was reelected. Marjorie Taylor Greene was reelected. Lauren Boebert seems like she'll be reelected. Uh, Bob Good in Virginia was reelected, et cetera, et cetera. Andy Biggs, as we mentioned, was reelected. Paul Gosar uncontested, uh, and so on and so forth. So having all these Freedom Caucus members there, just the names I listed are enough to block a McCarthy speakership if it comes to a floor vote. Because that's what's unique about... The House compared to the Senate is that in the House, the entire House votes on speaker. 
in the Senate, it's the caucuses that vote for leaders because the president of the Senate is the vice president of the United States who is elected in the general election with the president. So Kamala Harris is going to be the president of the Senate no matter what happened uh, on November 8th. Like Republicans could have the Senate. Kamala Harris is still the president of the Senate. That's not how uh, they can't kick her out because that's what comes with the title of vice president of the United States. The House Speaker, on the other hand, every member, Democrat, Republican, Independent, votes for the Speaker. And Nancy Pelosi did a great job balancing the, I guess, the old type Democrats, the establishment Democrats with the new progressives like AOC, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib, the, prog- the, the, the squad, the progressive squad. And she got them to vote for her for speaker. And this is when Democrats had over 230 seats in the House. She needed their votes. So McCarthy, I think that's even more of an indication that McCarthy needs their votes. Because if they vote against him, we could see, I guess, Pelosi stepping down, but we could see Hakeem Jeffries be speaker. And so that whole election of saying, we're going to fire Pelosi, we're going to have a Republican speaker, was all for nothing. So at one, at one end, you could blame the Freedom Caucus by saying, think of the bigger picture here, like what's more important, having a Republican speaker who maybe you know, isn't, isn't as hardcore as they'd want him to be, but is still conservative in, in a lot of different ways, or risk a Hakeem Jeffries or a, D- a Democrat from getting that job. I mean, sure, I think the Freedom Caucus, it's politics, of course, everybody plays politics, should leverage McCarthy to say, let's get some good uh, committee positions. Like, I know Marjorie Taylor Greene wants a job on the Oversight Committee. She has the leverage to probably get that right now. I know that the, the Freedom Caucus wants to control the Rules Committee to dictate how bills are put forward to make sure that they're pu- seen publicly for 48 hours, which would kill any omnibus bill from being rushed through Congress. Not to say any of these things are bad or radical. A lot of people, my congressman, Dan Crenshaw, said that the Freedom Caucus is a huge fringe part of the Republican Party. Well, I think their voters would disagree, but uh, I disagree in the sense that the, the demands that they're making for the way the House GOP would will work is not radical at all. Irrespective of where their policy positions are, their demands are purely how the House will work, not necessarily policy. And that those are very reasonable. And it's what the American people wanted from a Republican House. More transparency, more effective work, more efficient policymaking. If we do exactly what the Democrats did in the House, I mean, that's just bad for the country. And I think now that we are, we have one of the two chambers of Congress and we're still in the minority in the opposition party from the White House, transparency is a good thing because then we can uncover all the corrupt things that the Biden administration has done. Alejandro Mayorkas is going to have a lot of committee hearings now to attend. They're going to investigate Hunter Biden. They're going to investigate all these things. So I want to get your thoughts on this just before we move on to the Senate. What do you think a House majority should prioritize? Do you think the investigations are all their House GOP are going to be able to do? Or do you think that we can actually influence the Biden administration policy-wise? Ooh, that is a good question. Um, I I really would hope to see the GOP focusing on policy. I think investigations are really important. But I think that's also kind of just playing the game that every party plays against the other. Okay, now we're in power and look at you over there. Let's see everything that you've done wrong and let's point it out just so we can make the other side look bad. And both sides do it, right? And you can't really point fingers because everybody's guilty of it. And I think it's an important part of politics because you you are, you know, you're working to expose what the other side is less than capable of and both sides have their less than capabilities. Um, but I think that being able to um, work with the other side is equally important. And I really hope that if we focus on some policy, then we can take the House and we can take the Senate and we can take the Biden administration and we can kind of work together and find some sort of middle ground. You were talking earlier about the, you know, with the Freedom Caucus being very conservative and Republican um, and how you know, compromising on those values is maybe a good thing and maybe a bad thing. And I feel like one large aspect of politics that I've taken away, especially working with the Republican Party in D.C., is that if you're running a very conservative candidate, and you know, in the Republican Party, 
you can't expect them to get the votes. And obviously, America is a, you know, the United States as a whole is a much more diverse area than simply D.C., which is, you know, a little just a little echo chamber of a capital. But um, you have if you if you're running this you know very far right candidate and expecting them to win. I think you're a little bit delusional and similarly with a far left candidate, of course, but um, running anybody who isn't willing to work with the other side and willing to work on compromises, I don't think is even worth it these days because you have such a polarized political spectrum, right? You need to, we need to work on not just bridging the gap, but making the gap smaller. And I think that's what the house Republicans really need to work on over these next couple of years. That's an interesting point you bring up, and I agree um, that we should be working with Democrats on a lot of issues. And I think that there is enough, there's hostility on both sides. I always like to bring up this example of Ted of AOC tweeting out, we need to like go after monopolies in big pharma, big tech, you name it. Ted Cruz replied to her tweet. So my senator from the great state of Texas replying like oh yeah let, let's get a bipartisan bill working on this to which she responded i don't want to work with you like and call them other derogatory things right so that that to me signals that at least a huge chunk of the democratic caucus doesn't really want to work with republicans especially if they are perceived to be extremist or maga um or any other uh far right label like the new york times ran a hit piece saying myra flores is a far right latina which is objectively false i mean there it's just i think a part of it is the press game but i wanted to ask you a lot of conservatives though feel like we have compromised too much and looking at our culture in particular we see now parents are rising up against their school boards like at virginia loudon county virginia is a great example of this Look at Glenn Youngkin's victory. Look at the parents for insert Republican candidate here. Signs going up everywhere. Do you think that this is the time for Republicans to compromise on the social issues? Or when you say compromise, is that more on fiscal issues like the budget, the debt ceiling, things like that? I guess I should probably first... uh clarify what I mean by compromise, compromise more or less in, um, you know, going back on their values, but being willing to find some sort of agreement where both sides um, have, feel like they have a say in the matter, um, not Republicans totally backing down on their values at all. Socially, it's, it's difficult because you look at conservatives and we're just kind of scooching a little farther towards the center all the time. And, you know, we are in effect, compromising on our values in the negative way. And you look to the left and are they compromising on their values? Absolutely not. They're just getting stronger in their values. And so where are we going to go? We're going to find a new moderate ground that is what is currently like mid-left, right? So in that sense, absolutely not. We don't want to be doing that. But I think we need to work on outreach and talking to people who don't agree with us, right? Talking to the other side and saying, here is, here's what we believe in. And here is, um, and here's why we, why we believe in it. And I feel like a lot of the issue also stems from the fact that a lot of those social issues that Republicans focus on are, it's really hard to look at young voters and even young to middle-aged voters and say, this is, actually in your best interest. And you have so many of the social issues of, you know, LGBTQ issues and abortion issues and all of these different things that the left says, yeah, we, we support women if they want to have an abortion. We support you unconditionally in any way. And that appeals to everybody. Everybody wants to be supported unconditionally. You have the right side says, no, we don't support abortion. And you're losing a huge population of voters that way because they don't feel supported, right? Obviously, we need to change our message, and I'm not saying to change our values on that. I think that is an awful thing to do. We nev never never, want to change values, especially on a social issue that is so prominent and so important, right? But we need to change our messaging because we're appealing to 
you know, people who have more experience in society, people who can see long-term effects. But I think as Pelosi said, young people are stupid. You know, we just, we go with, we go with the flow and we end up going with the left a lot of times. Um, So in terms of compromising, having that open dialogue is really what needs to happen. At the same time, I mean, Glenn Youngkin did very well with young voters in Virginia. I know I always sound like a broken record. I always bring up Virginia, Virginia. But I mean, it is such a, an important state to consider because this is a state that's Democrat plus 10. Like Biden won the state by 10. And Youngkin got single digits. Like Trump lost the youth vote in Virginia by like 30 points. Youngkin got it within single digits. So I think it's possible Republicans could do better with young voters. I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's messaging. And it's, you know, Lee Zeldin tweeted this. And he's, of course, now trying to challenge Ronna McDaniel for and see chair, uh, which we'll, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll get into in a little bit. But Lee Zeldin tweeted out and said, we need to go have a better outreach game and go to every community in America, no matter how blue they are. Because if we just give up, Democrats aren't giving up on even the root, the reddest of red counties. They have a ground game everywhere. So if we just say, oops, oh, the city is too blue, DC is a good example. If we just give up and say, DC, oh, you're so far gone, and we don't have a presence there. Mm-hmm. I mean, DC might be a unique example because they actually vote 90% plus for a candidate. In DC, I mean, it's three electoral votes. No offense to DC or DC voters, but in a state like Wisconsin, you're going to want to go to Milwaukee. You're going to want to go to Madison. In a state like Texas, you got to go to Austin. In Arizona, Phoenix, California, got to go to LA, San Francisco. You name all these big cities. The Republicans have just dropped everything and said, I'm done. They've <laughs> thrown their hands in the air. I'm done. Yeah. I'm not even going to try. You know where I'm going to go? To the suburbs of working class counties. And even then, we're not doing a good job. So we need to reform how we contact voters and to make sure that we have strong campaign teams everywhere in the country. We did a great job in Virginia. I mean, Glenn Young could walk the tightrope with the Trump suburban vote. At the same time, he energized a lot of people to vote, had a huge ground operation. I was involved in that, not to toot my own horn, but in Fairfax County, we had a great operation in Fairfax County is 70% plus democratic. I mean, a very strong ground game. We didn't obviously win the county, but we did the best that we could. So uh, with that said, it, it, it's just hard for the Republican Party to really proceed with the current structure, I think, that we have in place. We have new NRSC, NRCC chairs. So, so that's the National Republican Senate Committee and the National Republican Campaign Committee, respectively. There's new chairs of those two, and they typically run the elections. Uh, and also, we have a new chair of the Republican Governors Association, the RGA. And I think all, there there have been upgrades in all three of those. I think you got people who are much more in line with the voters. Republicans need to be flipping, uh, at least in these purple areas, especially in the Rust Belt. And at the same time, they're they understand that the party is changing. You can't just back incumbents because they're an incumbent. You have to assess. Are they the best person to win? Are they appealing to the most voters? Do they fit with their state? This, I think the Senate, this is a good segue to the Senate. Mitch McConnell in the, in the U.S. Senate Republican caucus, just back every incumbent possible. They just said, you know what? You are have an R next to your name. You're an incumbent. You have an asterisk at the little top of your name whenever you pop up on the New York Times. We're going to give you all the money in the world. I mean, Mitch McConnell gave t- millions upon millions of dollars to Lisa Murkowski to win. Didn't give it to Blake Masters. Didn't give it to Herschel Walker. Didn't give it to Mehmet Oz. He gave that money to Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, a state that was going to go Republican because you had Kelly Shabaka in there too. So I think that a lot of Republicans are too concerned about in party infighting than actually electing the most number of Republican senators. Because if I'm Mitch McConnell or you're even a Republican strategist, you look at the map and say, well, in Alaska, we're going to win no matter what. Either Murkowski is going to win because Democrats will vote for her second or Kelly Shabaka. Yeah, she's more conservative, but she's still Republican. We'll, we'll win on the first ballot because all the you know hardcore conservatives will vote for her and give that money to Blake Masters, who could or or Adam Laxalt, who with that money would have probably beaten Catherine Cortez Masto or 
as I said, Blake Masters could have beaten Mark Kelly or Mehmet Oz could have beaten John Fetterman. Like Pennsylvania literally has a senator that can't speak. Like that, that just blows my mind. And so the U.S. Senate, we still have the Georgia runoffs. It's important for us to win that Senate seat, even though Democrats will have the majority, but to keep it 50-50. Because if we lose and it's 51-49, Joe Manchin's vote, irrelevant. Like that, that, that title will push to Kirsten Cinema. And Kirsten Cinema, she's better than Manchin on some issues. She's far worse than Manchin on other issues. So it's a whole nother ball game if that like king slash queen of the Democrats Senate caucus is passed from Joe Manchin to Kirsten Cinema. So we'll see how that plays out. I encourage everybody who's listening, if you're in Georgia, you have family in Georgia, be sure you're registered to vote. Be sure you are voting in the runoff. Vote for Herschel Walker to to save our country. I mean, this I don't want to gaslight people. I don't want to like uh, lie to you, but this is really important. The Senate race is really important because it sets up 2024 in a big way because that makes it easier for us to take the Senate in 2024. So don't be demoralized. The, the war is not over. We may have lost this battle. The war is not over. If we give up, they win. It's all about keeping up morale. And I know everybody who's listening to this, if you're at on in within the Georgetown conservative, Georgetown Republican community, you have been, we are going through that right now. We are in an overwhelmingly liberal area. We're fighting the good fight every day. We're bringing in conservatives. We want to stay strong. And this is how we do it. We got to keep get the rest of the country on board with it. Because if we put our hands up, we surrender, say, oh, we lost. And we just cave into the Democrat demands. We will never win. And the idea of America, the America that we know and we love, that we celebrate, is gone forever. So I, I don't mean to gaslight anybody. I really don't. I don't want to lie or, or, or cause an inflammatory scene. But it really is that important. It really is. And if the Democrats say the same thing to their people, to their operatives, we have to do the same. We have to treat every election as a chance to push our agenda forward. And if we back down, even in the toughest of circumstances, we'll lose the country for good. And I don't know, Leah, you want to add to that about what's uh, what's going on, but, uh, let, but what's your take on the Senate and how the Georgia runoffs could impact the dynamics? I think you said it really well. Um, I think that, and we're we're trying to get boots on the ground in Georgia, right? We're, we're really trying our best. How it'll all, all go down uh, really remains to be seen. But, um, you know, we're, and even, even D.C. has been talking to some D.C. Republicans. Can anybody, can we get down to Georgia? Can we try and have an influence on the elections? And all we can try and do is have that influence and use that messaging and really see how it all shakes out. Well, enough about the Senate. I don't think there was too much movement there um, to really say, oh, concretely what happened. I think we need to really see how Georgia goes. And then fully, I think the Senate, it's, it's, it's just a harder chamber to analyze, really. But let's talk about governor's races. This is like the most of the three tiers we're talking about. This is the most localized race, even though it is statewide. It is the most local issues based elections. We saw Democrat every incumbent hold. Every incumbent was reelected that went up for reelection, except for Governor Sisolak in Nevada. It's the only exception that Republicans flipped. Democrats picked up three. Governorships in Massachusetts, Maryland, and Arizona. Arizona is, of course, pending any legal action that Carrie Lake and her team might do. Uh, but according to Associated Press and the media, they have called it for Katie Hobbs. But should a miracle happen in Arizona? I mean, as I haven't been quiet in my admiration for Carrie Lake in past episodes, just you can watch our Sunbelt episode about Arizona and Nevada. You'll know all about how much I love Carrie Lake. So in an ideal world, she finds a way to win this, the governorship in Arizona, but that's a whole nother can of worms. So I'm going to try to avoid Arizona, but on paper, we did lose Arizona for now. So have, and then of course, Maryland and, and Massachusetts are very blue states. That was expected that we were not going to keep those because uh, the incumbents were not running for reelection. Well, one, 
Larry Hogan was term limited. Charlie Baker stepped, retired. But Democrats surprisingly held Kansas. So Laura Kelly got reelected in Kansas, state that Trump won by double digits. Gretchen Whitmer of your state of Michigan got reelected by double digits. Tony Evers won Wisconsin by around three points. Josh Shapiro won by double digits. But also Greg Abbott won by double digits. Ron DeSantis won by almost 20 points. So Brian Kemp in Georgia won by seven points. Kathy Hochul is the only incumbent governor that really struggled. And she lost by around five, six points in New York. New York with Lee Zeldin. I mean, we talked about Lee Zeldin. We'll get to him later. But break down what happened in Michigan. I hyped up Tudor Dixon. I thought she was going to do a lot better than she did. What happened? I mean, Democrats have a trifecta in Michigan. They control every major state office, statewide office, and the state legislature. What happened? Well, if you look at Michigan maps from you know, 2016, 18, 20, and then 22, you see all of these, the entire state of Michigan is just moving left just a little bit. All of the arrows are just, you know, the little blue arrows um, pointing to the left. So we have a lot of uh, very directionally challenged voters. They are moving to the left. They need to be moving to the right. And why that is, it's, it's kind of hard to say. I think a lot of it, as I was talking about in the Michigan episode, was um, a funding thing. Gretchen Whitmer had, she had the incumbent in her favor. She had the funding in her favor. And Tudor Dixon was, she was someone who kind of just appeared out of nowhere, right? I mean, we had, none, none of our Republican candidates who were running had any past political experiences. So the name Tudor Dixon wasn't known. And that's a huge part of politics is just being being known, having your name out there. And that's something that Tudor Dixon really just didn't have. Um, did we expect Gretchen Whitmer to win by, you know, at 54 versus, you know, 43% for Tudor Dixon? No, not really. I didn't think it would be that close or sorry, that far apart. Um, but unfortunately it was. And then of course we had the Senate and we had the House as well. And I really think that a huge part of that was um, our Proposition 3. It was uh, to essentially have a grant abortion access, um, a very widespread abortion access, uh, if it passed. And it did. Um, and I think that was a huge thing that drew a lot of Democrats to the polls. And it just didn't draw the Republicans to the polls, um, unfortunately. But we saw a lot more, a lot more wins than we were expecting for the left. Um, obviously, resulting in the trifecta. And I saw someone post uh, on social media. We have the, uh, you know, we have the House, the Senate, the um, governor, and it's time to pass some meaningful legislation. I'm going to go back in a couple of years and see how much meaningful legislation has been passed. Uh, so we'll, you know, we'll see how that goes, but it is just not, it's not a good time for Michigan. People don't understand the negative impact that Gretchen Whitmer has had on the economy over the past couple of years. Um, and Tudor Dixon did not do enough. And I'm frankly, none of the Republican candidates did enough to emphasize how bad it was for Michiganders um, and how much they could help to reverse it as opposed to um, Gretchen Whitmer's policies just playing out again and again and again. It's not putting Michigan in a good place and whether or not Michigan will ever realize that I, I really don't, I don't think they will. I think it's just going to be something that continues to take over. Unfortunately. Yeah. Big Gretch strikes again. Um, but yeah, I mean, she, you guys are term limited, right? So Michigan, you can only get two terms. Uh, so she cannot be reelected in 2026. That's, that's a silver lining for you. You'll have a new governor in 2026. We'll see which party, but yeah, I would say Michigan was one of the most disappointing results of the night for me personally. Uh, and Congressman Mike Garcia, who was just reelected. So big congratulations to Congressman Garcia. Also Georgetown grad, Sahoya Saxa. Uh, he tweeted the other day saying, if you're a Republican candidate and you want to run for office, 
and 24, start campaigning now. Don't wait. Don't wait until the last few months or until the primary. Start now. Go knock on doors saying, this is, you know, I'm going to be running for insert office. I'm going to be your local Republican candidate. These are what I stand for. These are the issues I, I want to discuss. And just get your name out there. And I don't think that Tudor Dixon did that enough. I don't think any Republican at the congressional level did that either in Michigan. Uh, they were known within, you know, the highly political class, you know, among the Republicans. So like, I know who like John Gibbs is. I know Peter Meyer. Well, Peter Meyer is, I guess, more well-known, but like, I know Lisa McLean. I know John James and not everybody in Michigan might know those people. Right. I mean, John James did win. So congratulations, Congressman elect John James. That's, that's your Congressman. Leah. I know that he'll do a great job for you guys. I'm very excited. Super excited about that. So that's your silver lining of the night in Michigan. Uh, but Dan Kildee and Alyssa Slotkin were reelected by huge margins. Kildee was reelected by 10 points, Slotkin by five. And these are two districts that Trump, Trump won Slotkin's district in 2020, but he barely lost Kildee's. And I think that that tells me, and this is a common trend throughout the Midwest, in my opinion, is that the working class did not turn out. The, the, the blue collar workers who were Obama Trump voters did not turn out at all. They just didn't vote or they voted Democrat. Like they still vote there. They still religiously vote Democrat down ballot. But if Trump said they would vote Trump at the top of the ticket and then Democrat down ballot. I think that that's the kind of voters that the working class voters that did turn out. So it favored, you know, Josh Shapiro, it favored Gretchen Whitmer, it favored Tony Evers. But if Trump were at the top of the ticket, I think you would have seen all those races be closer. So it's a matter of, you know, Republican Party needs to find its messaging of how do we walk that tightrope of getting our suburban base to turn out, which they did. Congrats. The GOP did that in a lot of states, New York in particular, Florida, Texas. They got their suburban base out, but they need to get that blue collar base out. I don't know whether that's candidate quality. I don't know whether that's messaging. We'll find out. I think it's both. Because as you said, Tudor Dixon didn't have a name. You either got to start campaigning earlier or you have to be a big name already in Michigan like or in any other Rust Belt state. Like nobody – like I didn't even know who Doug Mastrano was until the primary. I knew Lou Barletta because he was a congressman for a while. So he had a little more name recognition than a state senator in Doug Mastriano. So that that hurt there. I thought Dr. Oz would certainly do better. He has big name recognition, but he failed. So that shows that messaging wasn't right because you had candidates that were on polar opposite ends. I think Mastriano, yeah, he was a more hardcore, they call him far-right conservative, but he was much more in line with that working class base than Dr. Oz. And Dr. Oz, he did he did what he needed to in the Philly suburbs, just Western Pennsylvania did not turn out. So it shows that that media personality, that celebrity status doesn't work for everyone. But let's let's move on. In the last question I have for you, let's talk about the RNC, the Republican National Committee, the Republican Party more broadly. So we talked about governor's race. I think a lot of them are more individualized. You can't really point to a common thread between all of them. Like Kansas, I guess, Laura, the, the only thing I can say is incumbents are just really strong. Incumbent governors still have a lot of sway and people re-elect incumbent governors. I think that that's the main takeaway. Uh, so, so challengers will be tough to beat. I think 2026, you'll see a lot of new governors because they're, they'll all be term limited. So that's, I think where Republicans need to pick up those seats. I think that that's something that we, I underestimated for sure. I thought people would be, the incumbency factor was going away because of Trump. I thought that he would, the new GOP would blow right past any incumbent factor, but turns out voters still care. Republican and Democrat, like Greg Abbott in my home state of Texas, he won by 11 points against Beto O'Rourke, right? He didn't do as well in South Texas on the Rio Grande Valley. He won Zapata County still, which is impressive, but he did much better in the suburbs. He won Tarrant County, Denton County, Collin County, all by larger margins than Trump did. Well, he won Tarrant County, Trump lost Tarrant County, and he did much better in the, well, better in some of the Austin area counties. So that's the big takeaway. And Kim Reynolds, who I like a lot from the great state of Iowa, she got reelected by a huge margin. A lot of people don't talk enough about Iowa. They had a red wave. Iowa, like New York and Florida, 
had an actual red wave. So good on you, Iowa. She's now the new chair of the RGA. I see her as a great VP candidate for a much more bombastic candidate or much more vocal, or, or you could even say firebrand presidential candidate. So she's a name to watch, especially after Trump has now declared his candidacy. Keep an eye on Kim Reynolds as a potential VP pick for him. Uh, that That's how highly I think of her. She, I think, is a great epitome of what the Republican Party could be because she won the suburban vote in Iowa. She got the working class vote out. So I think that she's somebody to, to keep an eye on is definitely moving forward. But looking at the ROC at, uh, RNC at a more macro level, we're now seeing Lee Zeldin, who got within five points of, of Kathy Hochul in New York, basically stating he's going to challenge Ronna McDaniel for the chairmanship. Do you think Lee Zeldin, A, can beat Ronna McDaniel? Or B, do you think that that election, I think that this is a better question. Uh, do you think Lee Zeldin, given his strong performance Tuesday night, coming so close within New York and basically handing Republicans four House seats, gives him a lot of clout within, within the party to to challenge Ronda McDaniel? Do you think that he has a legitimate reason to say, hey, look how well I did in New York, a very blue state. I got the rurals to turn out for me. I got the suburbs to turn out for me. Just New York is just so unfavorable. I, there's only so much I can do. Do you think he has what it takes to be a good RNC chair? I would say so. I mean, yeah, as you said, you look at his turnout in New York. I think that was it was absolutely spectacular. And I think that if he goes in, he talks about that. Right. That shows that he has what it takes to uh, go up against a lot of people who absolutely disagree with him. They absolutely don't like him in any respect. Um, and it shows that he is quite good with, as we've been talking about a lot, uh, the messaging aspect, right? The fact that he got as many people to come out as he did, the fact that he got that many votes in such a blue state really says a lot about him and his character and um, also the people he's working with, because it's never just the candidate themselves. It's the team that they have uh, with them. And so the fact that he has such a great team, the fact that he um, was able to do so well in New York, I think it definitely does make him um, a really great candidate. I mean, that's the elections in January. So if he wants to challenge Ronna McDaniel, it's all out there. I know a lot of state party chairs have backed him. The Republican Party of Texas chairman has said, I'm going to back Lee Zeldin over because he's, I think, a voter in the RNC for Texas. Ronna McDaniel, of course, still has her entrenched supporters. Uh, and it's it's not an easy task because, of course, as we were talking about with governors, incumbents are hard to beat. Um, so I think same logic applies for Ronna McDaniels, an incumbent RNC chairwoman. In all honesty, I think if Lee Zeldin wants to unseat her, he needs to get some big name politician to back him. Probably Donald Trump. Uh, it could be Ron DeSantis. It could be like a Glenn Youngkin as well. They could all back like if all those if all those names back Lee Zeldin and say, you know what, me endorse him to be RNC chairwoman. Ron has got to go. That would that would cause, I think, the the seismic shift needed to unseat her. The only question is that's Ronna McDaniel's who Trump picked to be the RNC chairwoman. So if like a Glenn Youngkin, Ron DeSantis, any like anti-Trump Republicans gang up on Ronna McDaniel saying you are the Trump pick, ironically because her middle name is Romney. She's related to Mitt Romney. She's, I think, his niece, if I'm not mistaken, but she's related to the Romney family. So that's very ironic how the establishment would want to unseat a Romney with Lee Zeldin, who is arguably very hardcore conservative. He just didn't really show it. Kathy Hochul tried to un uncover it, but Lee Zeldin just ran such a great campaign that she couldn't. It she played defense, not offense. I mean, she even said, I don't know why you care so much about this, talking about crime. Like, really, really, Governor Hochul, that's your response? So I think the Heat would definitely make a great RNC chair. The fact that he's tweeting, we have to go out to every community, makes me really want him to be RNC chair because I think he's what we need. Honestly, no disrespect to Ronna McDaniel uh, or the job that she's done, but I think Lee Zeldin is just that much better than her. Uh, and I think that I, I would encourage other state party chairs to endorse Zeldin, get behind him, because the grassroots has spoken. 
They've said, this is a guy who represents every faction of the party. And he holds strong to his values. He got endorsements from very heavily liberal groups, lots of like Orthodox Jewish groups, even reformed Jewish groups. He got the Muslim community in New York City to endorse him. A lot of these communities vote 95-5 Democrat in most elections, and they endorsed Lee Zeldin. I saw one of the Jewish uh, communities endorsement said, we endorse Lee Zeldin for governor, Chuck Schumer for senator, and Latita James for attorney general. That's how that's how much they backed Zeldin, or they hated Hochul, one of the two, that they were willing to split their ticket with Chuck Schumer and Lee Zeldin. That's, that's, you had a lot of ticket splitting. And the fact that he's able to get those voters to vote for him gives him a lot of clout going up into an RNC election. So with that, Leah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and congratulations on your victory and being able to come on again. You're always a joy to have on and enjoy the, have a good luck with the rest of the semester. I know we're heading into final season soon. So have a great rest of the semester. Thank you so much. It was a joy to be on here once again and um, all the same to you as well. Thank you for listening to this new episode of the Elephant in the Room podcast. Be sure to rate it five stars on whatever podcast streaming platform you are using. And be sure to follow the Georgetown University College Republicans on Twitter and Facebook at GeorgetownCR and on Instagram at Georgetown Republicans. We truly appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to our podcast and listen to our opinions. This is entirely student run. And we do this all for you, the listener. So thank you and have a great rest of your day.